Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. This is Reading the Globe. It's May 4, 2022. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting from New York. Censorship in China. Just how far does censorship in communist China extend? Farther than some may realize. The regime in Beijing seeks to extirpate not only speech and writing that contravene its dogmas, but even and especially symbols that might give viewers the wrong idea. If you want to be a sought-after market for the release of blockbuster movies, having a population of 1.4 billion people does not hurt. But it can be frustrating for the studios to come up against the highly particular criteria that Chinese officials bring to bear when screening movies for release. An article by Zachary Evans in National Review Online on May 2 details how China's censors demanded that Sony cut out the Statue of Liberty from the climax of Spider-Man No Way Home. Evans notes that the monument is on view throughout the 20-minute climax. In the view of Chinese censors, it is unacceptable for viewers to take in, even subliminally, the image of a statue symbolizing resistance to and freedom from any and all forms of tyranny. The surprising news is that Sony did not cave to the censors' demands, as other studios have done when seeking to release their product in the enormously lucrative markets of China. Sony refused to cut or even shorten the sequence in question. The studio's move is admirable given how much money Spider-Man No Way Home stood to make in China. According to Evans' article, citing box office mojo figures, the first Spider-Man entry to star Tom Holland grossed $116 million in China on its release, and the subsequent one, $200 million. Either figure is more than a lot of films ever reap in all the markets where they come out put together. In saying no to Chinese officials, Sony is something of an outlier. Other studios don't have the moral courage or the will to forego hefty profits. Evans notes that Warner Brothers removed language alluding to a gay relationship in Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, in order to make the movie palatable to China's censors. In this connection, Evans could also have mentioned the troubles that the makers of Brokeback Mountain encountered when trying to release their movie on Chinese screens, and the fact that communist officials censored director Ong Lee's Academy Award acceptance speech. I have made this point elsewhere, but the left's belief in intersectionality simply does not hold up in the light of the reality that American studios face when trying to market their product in China. Women, people of color, gays, lesbians, bi, and transgender people are not united against straight white men. As American filmmakers have seen over and over, movies depicting or even making reference to gay relationships find an infinitely more tolerant and hospitable market in societies whose laws and institutions are the work of straight white men than in the markets of China. The Times Gets It Wrong Again Jesse Wegman of the New York Times editorial board believes that the Supreme Court, as currently constituted, is out of touch. 
The title of his May 3 opinion piece in the Times says it bluntly, This Supreme Court is out of step with most Americans. The development this week that gets Wegman's blood up is the leaking of an opinion that has circulated among members of the court and that looks poised to strike down Roe v. Wade, paving the way for the states to determine whether abortions will be legal within their borders or not. The author of the draft opinion is reportedly Justice Samuel Alito, who enjoys the backing of the other members of what people often call the conservative majority on the court. Wegman complains at some length that the court has become increasingly politicized over the years, to the point where it resembles Congress more than a body undertaking the review of laws and policies in an impartial manner and assessing their constitutionality. Hence, it is ironic that Wegman's objections to the pending ruling on Roe v. Wade are political rather than legal in nature. He sounds like a political partisan, indeed like an activist, when he lashes out at the court for its stance on Roe v. Wade. Wegman bases his objections very largely on opinion polls that he claims show broad support among Americans for legal abortion. But even if we accept the validity of these opinion polls, how much bearing do they have on the court's deliberations? I wonder whether Wegman realizes what he is saying here. He has criticized the court for resembling a lawmaking rather than a judicial body, yet he then plainly suggests that public opinion on a given issue, not the Constitution, should guide the court's decisions. It seems absurd to have to point out something so elementary, but it is Congress whose elected representatives can draft and pass laws responsive to what the people who elected them want, and can, if they see fit and if they command a certain threshold of support, set in motion a process to amend constitutional provisions that they deem to be out of sync with the times and to interfere with sound policy. What the court explicitly cannot do under our system of government is ignore law and legal precedent and make decisions in accordance with the wishes of raging mobs clamoring in the streets or on Twitter for this or that policy. The repeal of Roe v. Wade is based to a large extent on arguments about states' rights federal overreach, and what the Constitution does and does not say on the subject of abortion. It would be nice if Wegman showed a better understanding of the legal reasoning that the majority on the court seeks to put to use, but reading his op-ed piece, it is not clear that Wegman understands his own views. The Passing of Kathy Budin The California Globe's Evan Simmon reported on May 2 that Kathy Budin, the member of the Weather Underground who attained notoriety for her role in the deadly Brinks robbery of October 1981, has died at age 78. Budin was the mother of San Francisco's progressive district attorney, Cheza Budin, who faces possible recall in an election scheduled for June 7, as a consequence of his disastrous policy of decarceration, which has driven crime way up and eroded the quality of life in what many long considered to be one of the most desirable places in the world to live. For the purposes of his article, Simmon talked to Washington-based elections advisor Monica Wald, who sees a couple of distinct possible consequences of Kathy Budin's passing for Cheza Budin's prospects in the recall election. Wald sees it as possible that this development will evoke sympathy for the younger Budin. At the same time, she thinks it is practically impossible for people to hear about Kathy's death without also hearing about her radical past, 
and her involvement in a robbery that led to the deaths of a Brinks guard and two Nyack police officers. Notwithstanding the identity of Chesabudin's mother, voters have more than enough reason to say goodbye to him forever. In the aftermath of the George Floyd riots, he has been one of the most outspoken and relentless critics of the police, and his irresponsible rhetoric has contributed to the demoralizing of the police and a feeling that there is no point in officers even attempting to do their job when the DA is likely to dismiss cases and show extreme leniency in those he does pursue. Budin has declined to prosecute even violent crimes such as sexual assault. Shoplifting has grown endemic, and it has been common for thieves to enter pharmacies, help themselves to products, and walk out unopposed, in the knowledge that their crimes hardly amount to serious offenses in a city where Proposition 47, a ballot initiative passed in 2014, has made it a misdemeanor to steal goods with a value of up to $950. Walgreens has closed dozens of stores in the area in recent years. As a Wall Street Journal headline puts it, San Francisco has become a shoplifter's paradise. Cheza Budin does not work in retail and is well insulated from the consequences of the policies he favors. The top salary for a San Francisco DA is more than $200,000 per year plus benefits. Voters are bound to ask what they are getting in return for their sacrifice. The World Outside Maybe you remember that tender age when you were just barely old enough to begin to take trips by yourself. The literary journal Rosebud has just published its long-awaited 69th issue, and on page 140 of this issue you will find my short story The World Outside, which is an account of a boy's trip by train from Chicago through a swath of rural Michigan and back. It evokes mid-century America and draws its inspiration largely from Theodore Rethke's poem Night Journey. In Rethke's poem, the narrator describes riding in a Pullman car through an alternately bright and misty part of the upper Midwest, and conveys the depth of his love for a land that holds out such natural beauty to the observer. The protagonist of The World Outside, a boy named Ryan, cannot suppress his curiosity about the adults on the train carrying him through the countryside, and he ventures into the cafe car in order to ply them with questions about their trades and lives. On the first leg of the trip, from Chicago up to Lansing, his interlocutors run the gamut from an anthropology professor to an aggressive young investor to a high society debutante to an executive of an automaker looking for ways to steal market share from some of the leading car makers of the day. They are friendly enough and eager to impart a bit of wisdom of that trade or profession of which they have specialized knowledge. But after spending a bit of time with his uncle in Lansing, Ryan has quite a different experience on the ride down. The adults are no longer so friendly. In fact, their deportment is so strange and off-putting that he begins to wonder about their identity. Like Theodore Rethke in Night Journey, another of his poems, I have gone to lengths to depict the almost surreal beauty of the countryside of the upper Midwest and illuminate the psychology of a boy for whom the land exerts such a hypnotic effect. But the influences for The World Outside go far beyond the Rethke poem. 
They include writers such as Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson, who so expertly depicted in their fiction the encounters of youth with the danger and strangeness of the world. In the end, I hope that The World Outside will evoke more wonder and terror on the reader's part for what it prompts the reader to imagine than for what it actually shows. As readers of W.W. Jacobs' classic story The Monkey's Paw will affirm, this approach can be powerful indeed. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. You need real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. Audio Hopper. Real news. Narrated. In the App Store.